Welcome, welcome, welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. And each week, we talk about what's going on in the world. And as we talk about that, I let you know my thing is this, about what's going on in the world. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. Stay tuned, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Happy New Year! Applause, please. All right, it is January the 1st, 2022, and this is a special podcast. I call this the Year in Review podcast uh, on the My Thing Is This podcast with Troy Sampson. Or should I say, I call this a Year in Review on the My Thing Is This podcast where Troy Sampson is your host. A lot to unpack in the year 2021. There's a lot going on. Um, so I'm going to try to, I had to make a list <laughs> of things to really touch on because it's just so much stuff. And, you know, me being a former military guy, served in the Coast Guard and had that military experience and attention to detail. There's so many other little details that we can tap into, but I'm just trying to cover because I would be here all day. This would be a six to seven hour podcast. So I'm going to try to make this short and sweet today um, and just touch on you know, a lot of things that's going on in the world in 2021. Some things I may cover, some things I may not. Um, but I'm going to give it my best shot today, so just please bear with me. Uh, and um, hopefully you enjoy this content as I share with you my thing is this on those things that are happening in the world in 2021. All right. So as the Tribe Called Quest would say, or should I say Malik Taylor AKA Fife Dog, rest in peace, Fife Dog, the five foot freak, as they called him, as he called himself. Um, we're going to say, next up, the bat. Or as he did in, uh, I think it was Scenario, one of them songs he did. Nobody's included, no strings attached, no horse bars, time for mood shaking. Got to make the look so I can bring home the bacon, brother's front, so the track can't flow. We've been knowing the day impossible since Broadway Joe. Okay. All right. So starting off, topic number one. I'm gonna go ahead and dig into COVID. I got a couple of things I'm gonna talk about with COVID. So COVID's gonna be first up. And I'm gonna talk about COVID. The first thing I'm gonna talk about is the COVID vaccines. Well, number one, well, first of all, let me start off saying COVID is still here. We've had the initial uh wave of COVID that to date has taken out or COVID period has taken out 815,000 plus people since it hit our shores in beginning of the 2020, 815,000 people have been lost and we're still losing some each day. It's not at the level it was when the pandemic first hit, but nonetheless, people are still getting infected. People are still being hospitalized and people are still dying. Our healthcare system, our healthcare workers, God bless them are just stressed out to the max and seeing death every day and then having to be the ones to convey that message to the family members that you might want to come in and say your last goodbyes and all that stuff to your family members because this is the end and this is it. And I know the healthcare profession, doctors and nurses and those people that support the doctors and nurses in the hospital from the anesthesiologists to the MRI techs to the people all the way down that clean the bathrooms, the people that run the gift shop stores, 
everybody in the hospital system is affected um, by this pandemic. And so um, more so our doctors and nurses are on the front lines that are really affected by this. But everybody is a team in this. And so everybody feels that brunt. You know, I don't think the gift shop worker who sees someone comes in or talks to a family member that may come to visit or get something out of the gift shop is, is you know, is, is, is saying one day, how's your family member doing? Then the next day, finding out or sometime later finding out that the same person that you talk to now and the family member is gone due to COVID. And so that affects everybody. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a mental health thing. And so, you know, our resources are beginning to become stretched thin and, I'm not going to turn this into this year in review of COVID into a political thing. Um, I've, I've spoken on COVID and the vaccines and all this stuff, stuff before. So I won't dig too deep into it. I would just say this. We don't really, again, I'll repeat this. We don't really know what's in a lot of the stuff that we take. A lot of people are anti-government as to why they're not taking the vaccine. A lot of people are like, I don't know what's in it, but do we really know what's in it? And if we don't know what's in our foods, and we don't trust the government, then why are we even participating, period? You know, we can't pick and choose what we want to all of a sudden say, I want to stand on this, and then it's contradictory to this, to or or you turn around and be contradicted to something else. So you say, Well, I don't want the I don't want the the um the COVID shot, but if you go to travel to another country then you may be required to get a shot and you'll freely take that shot to go to another country, but you don't know what's in that. Um, you know, just other shots that we take, you know, our kids getting vaccinated for school, you know, seasonal stuff, you know, late in life stuff, shingles and pneumonia shots and stuff like that. We don't really know what's in those either, but we still take them. And again, the, this, this COVID vaccine from what I've read and from what I understand, um, and from what I've heard early on when they were developing these vaccines, and it's been pretty consistent with what some a lot of the doctors that I've heard speak about this and some of the articles that I've read in the past that were being written as the vaccines were being developed, that they already had a platform for this with SARS and MERS. So it wasn't like this vaccine was just genetically created out of the clear blue sky. They already years and years of research based on the first SARS and MERS outbreaks and also based on how they were treating HIV patients and with the proteins and stuff like that. So these things, it's like, it's like, a, it's not a new thing, but again, it's a personal choice, you know, it's a personal choice. And I think that as we make those personal choices, we have to understand that we have to live with those personal choices that we make. You know, if you decide to get vaccine or get the vaccine, then you're saying, okay, I trust the science. I trust the people that are in charge of the science, I'm going to take the vaccine, we're going to go from there, right? And if something happens to people that take the vaccines, whether it be both vaccines and then the booster, that's a chance that those folks, including myself and my family, are willing to take. Because we don't, you know, as we've seen, especially with this new um, Omicron variant, as we've seen, um, we have to realize and understand that this affects everybody differently. I've heard people say that have recently come down with the Omicron variant. I got no symptoms at all. I, I'm just I'm, I'm just in quarantine. I have no symptoms. But then you hear stories of other people that say they got 
four or five family members that have gotten the Omicron, you know, version of COVID, and they got headaches, they got chills, they got fevers, they got runny noses, they got sore throats. So this thing affects everybody differently. And so, and this just my thing is this, if you decide to play with that fire without the vaccine, it's kind of like Russian roulette, you know, and even those people that are not vaccinated have gotten COVID and have gotten over it and have moved on and decided they still don't want to get the vaccine. It could be Russian roulette. I don't know. You could be playing Russian roulette. It might not affect you this time, but something may have changed in your your physiology of your body, you know, over time that now you get it, now it's going to cause a little bit more damage. We've seen healthy athletes, professional athletes. You know, the Broadway actor, when COVID first came out, the Broadway actor was healthy as, a, healthy as an ox, from what I understand. Working out every day, eating right, all those things. He ended up losing his leg, and then he ended up dying. And then there's one of the MMA fighters who's a world-class athlete who posted on Instagram, you know, that he had blood clots in his legs. They actually posted a photo of his x-ray of his lungs with all the blood clots from when he caught COVID. And this is recently. This MMA fighter was recently. So, you know, but anyway, that's enough on the vaccine. You know, we're still going through it right now. There's this new variant out there that's spreading pretty rapidly and, and resources are being overloaded again because people are coming to the hospital. Um, I heard a story where someone went into the hospital COVID-free and ended up getting COVID in the hospital. It's crazy. And that's and I, and I think that's indicative of how overloaded our systems currently are. Um, for someone to go to a hospital that's supposed to be a clean place to and caught COVID in the hospital. Um, but anyway, I digress. Now, let's flip this over to education. And there's two pieces of this that I want to talk about. There is general education, then there's special education. Um, my heart is in special education because I have a son who's going through the special education system. You know, I serve on the board here where I live, um, the Community of Citizens Advisory Board for Special Education here in the county that I live in in Maryland. And so um, that special education side is near and dear to my heart. But let me talk about general education first, or just education as a whole. What this COVID has done and has shown us from the time it hit in 2020 where we shut down schools and definitely up through the 2020 school year into 2021 is that our education system needs to be fixed. Now, I don't have all the answers. I'm not claiming to have all the answers. I just have ideas and thoughts and stuff like that. Um, there are a lot of people in this world a lot smarter than me that deal with education and deal in education. Um, they have PhDs and master's degrees and all these other things that are, again, a lot, of, a lot smarter than me. I'm just telling you my thing is this about education. COVID has exposed that our education system is broken. Our education system is cookie cutter. Our education system doesn't have enough funding. It doesn't have enough. It doesn't draw enough teachers. And the model itself on education, how education is being taught, is is broken. And as soon as COVID came, you upset the apple cart. So now everybody's scrambling. Everybody's trying to adjust um, to this new form of learning. Right? They introduced online learning years ago. So online learning is not anything new. But what online learning did with COVID was it made it so that now everybody had to do online learning. And the system and infrastructures from kindergarten all the way up through college was not prepared for dealing with 
everything being virtual. The way we the way we teach, the way we're taught. You know, I graduated in the mighty class eighty six CSD. Shout out to CSD class eighty six. Um, even looking back on how we were educated then, and and just talking to people and seeing how education system is now, we got to change how we teach. We got to change the model, right? A lot of school systems are teaching the test because every, every school system is competing for funding. So if you perform a certain amount, if your school performs at a certain level and meets these requirements and pass these standardized tests, you get more money. That model to me is broken, and I'm going to tell you why. And, I, and you, can agree to, you can agree to disagree or you can tell me I'm wrong, you can tell me some more information, and that's fine. That's fine. But my thing is this, and I'm going to stand on my thing is this, is that teaching to get funding does not help the children. And because this education system is so broad, you have the haves and you have the have-nots in the education system. You have those that come from great environments where they have you know, parents in place to push them. And some kids are actually doing it on their own because not everybody comes from a great environment and they're still able to achieve. And then, of course, we have our special education students, and that's a different... I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But general education, just period, how it's taught needs to be changed. We're teaching for tests. We're teaching to rememorize and not learn. We're not teaching kids how to learn. We're just doing stuff in front of them. You got to memorize the timetables. You got to memorize addition, subtraction. You got to memorize math. You got to memorize all these things in science. You got to memorize, 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 right? So you can recall it. What about teaching kids how to learn? Like, what about taking from kindergarten or pre-K until grade four or grade three Teaching kids how to learn. Yes, you can teach the fundamentals of phonics and, and, and arithmetic, but just the fundamentals. But main part of your curriculum should be teaching them how to learn. And then as they matriculate on to the higher grades, now they know how to learn. Now you can advance the more advanced concepts to them of what this is, this is and that is. And then on top of that, I think you, you should look at, okay, what career path does this person want to take? What career path does this person want to take? This young person want to take, right? Because if you are going for the technology field, right? You're getting into IT, whether it be coding, programming, uh, networking, security, operations, right? What good really is chemistry, and a whole bunch of trigonometry and all these other things and all these other classes that you got to take as core classes in college, right? That you're going to have to pay for, going debt to pay for, for those who have to get loans that don't have anything to do with your degree. Because if you're going for strictly for IT degree, there's a certain amount of IT classes that you take that will prepare you for a job in IT that you can actually get an IT degree in two years because you cut out all the other English and all these other things that you need and these little electives that are filler classes, right? And be very specific because we live in a technology age, right? And so we got information coming at us at, at, a, at, a, at, at a mile a minute, which is digital, which is known as digital diluge, right? There's too much information to process, but it's enough information that if you're taught how to learn, right, you can take the diluge of information and break it down into learnable chunks that you can take and grasp this information from. So therefore, you don't need, like, English 101. What is really English 101? 
You've had English from the time you were in elementary school all the way up until high school. You had English. You know how to speak English. You understand how to read, right? You're not going to school to be a Shakespearean writer if you're in IT. So what does English, all that stuff have to do with anything? So the education system should really, really speak to teaching kids how to learn, right? And then as they learn how to learn and master concepts and master information, and can recall the information and soak it in, right? Then you allow them to say, okay, I'm going to take this track. I remember years ago when I was a Coast Guard living in New York. New York was the first place I ever seen where you had actual high schools of specialties. I dated a girl, you know, before I got married to my wife, my current wife. There was a girl I dated that lived in Brooklyn. She went to high school for nursing. She graduated high school with an LPN as a licensed practical nurse. Graduated high school. Walked out of high school, walked into a $45,000 a year as an LPN. Because that was the focus. I asked, I said, so you don't have to worry about all the other classes? She said, Some, a lot of classes, we don't have to take those classes. Yes, we got to take English and stuff like that. But she said a lot of the, the curriculum stuff that we got to fill all these classes with, we didn't have to because we were specializing in nursing. So the bulk of her education was in nursing, in the nursing field, in, medic- in medicine, in high school. You got a high school for fashion. You had a high school for fashion up there. You had a high school for finance. Where, I mean, these were specialized high schools. And so if we change our educational system on a general education perspective, overall education perspective and teach our kids how to learn instead of teaching them that you got to memorize one one times one, one times two, one times three, one times four. And you got to do that for every single number till you get to 12, right? Instead of teaching them how to memorize that, teach concepts on how to learn, right? And the other thing this pandemic has done from an education perspective, and I and I think I shared this on a podcast before. I had a conversation after a Krav Maga class that I, I took, me and one of the dads in a group that I belong to uh, over at One World Center for Autism. Um, I facilitated a dadvocate, a dad, we call ourselves dadvocates, a dad's group over at One World of Dads for children, mostly, mostly children live with autism, but we welcome everybody into our group because we all, even though the modality may be different, even say for instance, you may have a child with Down syndrome, right? Even though the the aspects of what Downs and how Downs manifests itself in your child versus autism may be completely different. You may have some different challenges. We still have to, the overall perspective is we still have to care for a loved one living with a disability. So we all have that still in common, right? And we all still have those things that come with it, you know, gross motor skills, social emotional and things like that. Even though Downs may present itself a little bit differently, we still have that going on that we have to care for a loved one, especially as a dad and how that makes us feel, how we deal with that, how we manage that, how we manage our emotions, how we transition year after year, um, with the maturity of our children living with disability? Are they able to pick things up? Are they gonna grow and mature? Are they gonna meet us where we are or where they are? So those are the things that we gotta think about. And so in that group, you know, 
when we look at that, we got to look at all those different things. But anyway, let me scroll back real quick and kick it back to the general education piece. So I was talking, so after the Krav Maga class, right? Um, I was outside talking to one of the dads and one of the instructors that had just come back to the class. She had been away for a while. Come to find out she was a teacher in another school system here in the state of Maryland, another county. And so she got to talking about you know, the kids and how tough it is. She's at a Title I school. One of those t- Title I schools is a school that is, is, is trying to improve and getting special funding to improve and stuff like that. And um, she was... Um, she was telling us about some of the challenges that she has that particular, you know, going into the school year um, with the kids. And so she said she was having, they were, they were mandated to add social skills as a part of their daily curriculum. And I was like, social skills? And she said, yeah. Social skills. I said, are you a special education teacher? She said, no, I'm a general education teacher. She said, she said, they have to teach social skills. She said, they have to teach social skills um, as part of their curriculum for the general education students. I said, well, why is that? She said, because the pandemic has moved everything virtual and technology has taken over our children. Our children are so addicted to these devices and so dependent on these devices that they don't even go outside anymore. They don't even socialize anymore. If they socialize, it's via text. That's it. She said she had one kid in her class that she had to wean off of his phone. He was so bad. This wasn't a child with an IEP or 504. This was a normal, healthy, functioning child that is part of the general education that she had to wean him off of his phone because he took his phone everywhere. She had to make him go outside and, and play re- and do recess and leave the phone in the classroom or leave the phone in his pocket. She said she had to take baby steps with him. And I'm like, wow. So that's one of the things that's come out of, you know, that's starting to really manifest itself now for going back to 2020, but it's really starting to come out now here in the, in the, in the 2020, 2021, as our kids are going back to school, a lot of our kids are challenged. They don't have the social component. And again, the education process is broken. Now, let's flip that over to special education. And my thing is this, and and, and again, the opinions expressed uh, on the My Thing Is This podcast by your host, Troy Sampson, are those and those alone. I'm not speaking for anybody but me, okay, when I say this. I'm not speaking for any group or organization. I'm not speaking for any church. I'm not speaking for any business. These are my opinions alone, okay? This is just my opinion. My thing is this alone, okay? So when it comes to special education, our special education children suffered the most. The system really showed. It was already band-aided up and patched up and one of the wheels was ready to come off before the pandemic hit special education. There's a lot of challenges in special education, a lot of complaints, a lot of students' needs not being met. And it's for a variety of things. I don't, I, and I'm not going to put it on solely on the teachers themselves because we got a lot of teachers out there that are great teachers. My son had quite a few great teachers as he's come through school. He's graduated, but 
even before he went was placed into a non-public school, some of the public school teachers he had, especially in elementary school, were great teachers, and they did the best that they could with what they had. And I truly believe, and I talked about this before, and I read an article, um, I think it was an article we talked about uh, in one of my podcasts, one of the teachers talked about the stress and aggravation of just being that, as well as one of the nurses, you know, that I talked about, I think it was last week in my podcast about the nurse's letter and what she was feeling. But a lot of teachers, you know, get into this because they love teaching children, right? But here's the problem that we're facing with teachers across the board, and then we honing in on special education is, is number one, not enough resources, not enough funding, not enough bodies, not enough training, education, all those things. So now you take, with COVID happening, and it's a healthcare issue, it's a health crisis, right? You got a lot of teachers out there that are senior tenured teachers, close to retirement. They may be, you know, compromised or maybe have compromised immune systems. They're great teachers in the classroom when everything is normal. But now that COVID hit, I don't blame them for not wanting to risk exposing themselves to COVID. You know, whether vaccinated or not. I don't I don't blame them, especially our teachers that are close to retirement age have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. Then they're up there in, in age, you know, 50s and 60s, right? Great teachers, but I don't I don't necessarily blame them and that's their choice, right? I don't blame them for that. But at the same time, our education system is broken in a major way that in some in such a way that when this pandemic hit, special education was grossly unprepared for this. Because in special education, there's a lot of hands-on, face-to-face, speech therapy, OT, therapies going on, pull-outs, all those things that go with implementing a 504 plan or IEP plan. A lot of those things wasn't happening. And so now my kids were falling behind. Then on top of that, you have parents who are stressed out already before the pandemic, trying to make sure that their child is being taken care of and all the challenges that come with it. Because it's not just educating that child. It's life with that child. It is making sure that child can do for themselves. And if you have a child that can't do for themselves because of their disability, now you got to take that on too. So imagine now taking on all these things and now you got to make sure that you understand technology when it's time for them to be taught from home. And some of our children, a lot of our children with IEPs and 504s, because of the nature of their disability, can't sit still in front of a computer screen to take class. So now you got parents that have to stay home from the job. For those that had jobs that couldn't afford to stay home, they got to stay home. They got to figure something out. So now you add that stress to it, right? Then you have the model of online education, how that actually works. The teachers can't pay attention to stop the class and pay attention to one child. If you got a teacher's aide, that teacher's aide now has to figure out how to put that child in the breakout room, right? And then on the other side of that, the child has to figure out, or the parent's child has to figure out with them how to get to the breakout room to give them that one-on-one instruction. And then you got to transition them back into the classroom. The model is completely, the education model is completely broken and my thing is this, it's, it's like a herd mentality going on right now. It's like a herd mentality where it's just herd them all in, push them all through. If they get it, they get it. They don't, they don't. We'll push them on through anyway. And I'm not saying that to just say anything disparaging against teachers because there's a lot of teachers out there in this country 
in my county where I live, neighboring counties all around that love what they do. They're excited about it. But the landscape of teaching education has changed since the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Now you've got to deal with whatever this child is bringing to the table, whether they're a normal, healthy child or whether they're a child with a disability. You got to deal with what they're bringing to the table that's going on at home. Society's changed around us, right? The world has changed around us, right? So equip the education system, revamp it all. Just revamp the whole thing. Just say, hey, we're going to do this differently. We're going to break this model. We're going to, you know, states are now in charge of it. So states get a lot of their funding from property taxes, right? The federal government gives them maybe 30 to 4% of the funding. And there's a criteria behind that. I say break that model. Start taxing some of these billionaires, right? And then take some of the, the taxes from those billionaires, right? And funnel that into, instead of it being, since it's taxed, the federal government, you know, giving 30 to 40% of money to the states, right? Give more. And then make it so that now that we got this system in place, so that the state can effectively manage the funding. So that every school jurisdiction, every school in every school jurisdiction in any state should have more than enough teachers, resources, supplies, technology, everything should be available at the schools. There should be overabundance to a point where it could possibly end up people can end up taking stuff. I know this doesn't sound right, where people can end up taking lap books and top and all these other things and all these tangible things, all these material things, but at least have it so, and then put people in place that can move beyond the politics of education and get to the core of education, which is teaching our children. Stop with the politics, because with politics comes ego. With ego comes personalities and personal pride and personal this and personal that. I mean, Ryan Holiday wrote a book called Ego is, ego is the Enemy. I haven't bought it yet. It's one of those books I'm looking to delve into at some point here in the future but ego is the enemy you know what I mean and I've seen it for myself taking this journey where you're fighting as a parent for the best for your child right and you're asking that the IEP be implemented you're asking that these things be shown to you right but what ends up happening in a lot of instances is the teachers themselves they're mandated to say we can't do where they're mandated where they can't say we can't do this for your child because when a school admits that they can't do this for your child, that means the school now has to put them in private placement, which means it could range from anywhere from twelve to fifteen to thirty to forty thousand dollars a year for that child plus transportation for that child to go to a private placement that has to come out of the county's funding, right? And they gotta find that money from somewhere, right? So the teachers are being instructed not to say that in IEP meetings. We can't do it. They're not to, they 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 they're they're required, they're they're being told not to say that in the IEP meetings, right? Because we don't want to put the situation where all of a sudden they'll be all of our because all of our kids will be going to private placement, right? And maybe, just maybe, that might be a thought. That might be a thought. That you look at all the cases of children with disabilities with have 504s and IEPs, and you've got those children out there that require a certain amount of help to get them through the day. Right. Maybe the money should be earmarked. Maybe school districts should say we're going to create these schools or we're going to support private placement schools and we're going to get additional funding to where 
our children that need more help and more hands-on help, they're not even coming to the public education system. They go into the private education system, but the private education system has to be one where they're around children like them and can still get those social skills. Now, someone may, someone in education, like I said, there's more smart, smarter people than me in education. I know a lot. My, my, my godson's godmother, I mean, my son's godmother is, is one, one of the best I've ever seen. And she may have some thoughts on that too. But I think, and a lot of people say, well, you can't seclude our children with disabilities because they miss the socialization piece. You want to include them for, you know, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. And I get that. But what you don't do is you don't do the old model that we saw when I was in school, where you had one room, two special education teachers, and everybody that was considered special education was in that room. Whether it was real chill bound with cerebral palsy, whether they had autism, whether they had emotional, it was all stuffed into one class. Nobody's saying, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you put something equitable to where if you have certain certain functioning children, you put them with their peers that are like them, right? And somebody will say, well, you got to put them with someone that's a little bit more than them so they can pick that up. Okay, I got that. We, we, we figured it out, but you get what I'm trying to say, right? And those that are able to integrate into the general education setting, right? You keep them in public schools, but you beef up the money for the supports for them within that public school so that there's no shortage. Dedicated aid should be $20 or more an hour, right? Teachers should be, you know, close to six figures going in and then six figures eventually over time. Once they get past five years, they over six figures, make it worth their while, right? And then you just put place, things in place. Every school should have a crisis intervention program, whether it's for special education or general education, because our kids are in crisis either way, whether it's because they have a disability, living with a disability, or because they're, they're normal healthy kids going through teenage stuff. Put crisis intervention teams in place. This shouldn't be a, a thing where teachers that have 504s and IEPs, where you have a caseworker working 50 cases to one to one teacher. They got to teach. They got to manage IEPs. They got to do this. They got to implement. They got to do all this stuff and then manage all these cases. And, and not every IEP meeting, IEPs, our 504 meeting happens at the same time. So they got to multitask with that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And I know I spent a significant amount of time on that because, you know, that's one of my passions. But let me move on. Let me transition on the year in review. We're getting back to the year in review. But my thing is this, though, going back to COVID and education, this education period, especially special education, rethink it, rebuild it, remold it, reshape it. You know, give these kids a gap year, so to speak, or redo year across the board, right? Make the accommodations. If we can figure out how to put people on the moon privately, right? We can figure out how to have these kids go through. They need to repeat, repeat. Nobody wants to make that commitment. But anyway, I digress. Insurrection. <laughs> the day before my birthday, January 6, 2021, we saw something. The world witnessed it. A threat to democracy. Black Lives Matter never did that. This was a true threat to democracy. And we all know the outcome of that. And it's still, the outcome's still going on. We all know with a fair eye, whether you're white, black, green, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, late Asian, African, African-American, Italian, whatever your ethnicity is, right? 
if you look at it for what it is, you put it, put aside your beliefs or whatever the case may be, and look at the fact that they stormed the U.S. Capitol, right? That's a threat on democracy. It's unacceptable. It is completely unacceptable, right? To see something like that happen. Why? Because a president lost an election that everybody, or that these people, these folks, these insurrectionists thought they were, thought that was unfairly treated. And then he gets up and stokes that fire. And then it comes out, here we are, what? At the end of 2021, and you can hear, you can read text messages from individuals that was telling him, tell the people to go back, send them back home, tell them to get out, this, that, and the other. And, he, and it was completely ignored. And then we had what we had. Then you turn around after that, and they go into and they go to the impeachment process, right? Which was he was impeached, but then he was pretty much acquitted. He got a slap on the wrist. And I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop, or everybody's still waiting for the shoe to drop for the taxes. So he basically caused this whole thing. You had a one political party within our government structure basically protect this man and say it was okay. One political party that didn't allow another political party to push justices through, to make these changes, that and the other, and turn around and did the same exact thing. It's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy, 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 crazy to see this in 2021, something like this to happen. And then we just go on about our lives as if it's okay. For me, it's not okay, right? My thing is this. That dude should have, you know, he should have been impeached. He should be facing jail time, not just for that, but also for all the things. I mean, honestly, what standards do we have for people to be president? I mean, if I can get the right people behind me, no matter what I've done, how many times I went bankrupt, people I swindled, sexual assault and sexual whatever allegations against me, and I can still become president? Where's the moral code for being a president at? Anything like that's been just thrown away with this particular candidate. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you know, that that's just wild to me. So, I, I, I'm just, and again, we're, we're all waiting to see what's going to happen with all those people. Some of those people have got convicted and gone to jail. But the people that really need to be held accountable is not the people that stormed the Capitol. It's the people that fueled and stood behind and stood by and watched the storming of the Capitol happen. This Capitol was stormed. Not near Republican came out and said, I'm going to take the lead. We're going to shut this crap down. It's just like it just happened. And then it's happened, and then you put protections in place for him, 45, to where he's, he can be impeached, but then he's acquitted. It's like, okay, yeah, y'all came up. Y'all let everybody know what's going on. So we endorsed this. So we can't be blind and act as though that wasn't, it was just an offhand thing. And then let me not, let me not go down this road of the racial component of it. Black Lives Matter comes to D.C. You got security out the wazoo. Insur- these, these, these so-called good people or great people come to the, and they storm the Capitol. Black Lives Matter, they had everybody out in force in front of the Capitol. For these folks, mm-mm. 
Mm-mm. And somebody may listen to this and say, oh, well, you, you know, you, you, you're stoking up racial, you're stoking up racial this, you're stoking up racial that. Let's just be honest and truthful here and look at what the eyes see. I mean, let's be real. And it's an uncomfortable truth that a lot of folks don't want to have a conversation about. Because it asks folks to really take a look in the mirror, take a look at their brothers and sisters or cousins or nieces and nephews or co-workers and take a hard look at that. It's a hard pill to swallow. Right? But moving right along, okay, we've had <laughs> former officer, former officer Derek Chauvin as my, the former, uh, I was watching the trial of Derek Chauvin, right, on uh, Headline News Network. And they had a bunch of legal analysts, legal analysts on. Uh, I think Sonny Hostin was on. I think um, Laura Coates might have been on. A bunch of legal people. And they had a f- couple of former New York City officers that was on. And there was a New York City detective, a brother. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he had that strong New York accent. And whenever he would refer to Derek Chauvin, he would say in his New York accent, I don't know if I'm getting it right. You guys can tell me if I sound like him or not. But if you heard him, former officer. Derek Chauvin, former officer. He would say, former officer Derek Chauvin, right? <laughs> I love that. I always, I always kid my wife about that. Whenever his name come up, I would say, oh, yeah, you're talking about former officer Derek Chauvin, <laughs> right? And she would just bust out laughing. But anyway, so you had this trial. You had the Amar Arbery trial and convictions, and then you had a bunch of other stuff going on. And then the latest one was with Kim Potter, right? And so all these, these, just these three big ones alone, is a and my thing is this is enough for the peace act and qualified immunity to be pushed through without a without a doubt. You can't have because what you had is you had a guy, a law enforcement officer, put his knee on the guy's neck in front of the world to see. And God bless that young lady that videotaped the whole thing. I know she's probably seeking therapy and counseling, which I'm gonna get into right after I finish talking about this mental health, but God bless her for taping that. And to see him do that and to see and hear this man call for his dead mother and to see other officers around him, not narrow one say, get off his neck. After four minutes, somebody should have been saying, get off, get off his neck. But this went on for 846. Chappelle did a special on this called 846 in his, in his, at his farm in Ohio. 846, right? So you had that, right? Then you had the Amal Arby convictions where people think that they can become vigilantes on their own. He didn't do anything no different than anybody else was going to an empty house to see what was in it. There was nothing on videotape that showed him taking anything, and all he did was just take off back, take, you know, go back to jogging. Now you got some private citizens that decide to take it into their own hands. Instead of calling the pop, calling the police, they decided to do it on their own. Struggle ensued. Because if you, why would you go after an unarmed man who's jogging with your guns ready? Then you had this partner of yours filming the whole thing. Who he thought, well, because I filmed it, I didn't pull the trigger, I shouldn't go to jail. Well, y'all all three went to jail. And then what's even worse was, the district attorney covered it up. I mean, this didn't come out for months because she covered it up and let the dude go. And then law enforcement officers show up on the scene 
it's just it just boggles your mind. This is why no one is asking police officers to give up their guns. No one is asking police officers to remain vigilant in their job. No one is asking police officers to not draw their service weapon when it's absolutely necessary. But what we are, what, what folks are asking, what I'm asking, my thing is this, is you have to be trained and ready. And some people say, well, you, you ain't never been a police officer, so you don't know what it's like. You don't know that this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. You're right. I don't know. And it's probably why I didn't sign up to be a police officer, but you did. You signed up to be a police officer knowing that that thing that you have on your right hand, on your right hip, or your left hip, depending on which, which, whichever hand you fire your service weapon with, is a lethal weapon that could take somebody out in an instant. Right? And I hear stories all the time that there are police officers being taught in these academies, send them ass, take them out. You either go home that night or they go home at night. Which one's it going to be? The training is a problem, right? And, you know, going back to the Kim Potter case, and I was reading some of the aftermath of what some of the jurors were thinking, right? And what they felt and saw, what they felt and saw and felt, right? It was like they were split across the board. 444, you know, 6 and 6, right? So they were split across the board until, from what I read, until the day they were able to hold the taser and the handgun in their hands. That changed the whole verdict. When they got it, when they when they had the opportunity to actually hold and handle a service weapon and a taser, that changed the whole landscape. It was like, how can you mistake the two? Law enforcement, you know, guys that come on TV, former law enforcement officers that come on TV and wrote articles about the difference. The service, the service weapon is heavier. It's got bullets in it. It's black. Most tasers are green and lighter. When you pull it up the line of sight to shoot it, you just don't shoot your, you just don't shoot a weapon, whether it be a taser or a weapon, without aiming it. So when you pull up to the line of sight, you can't see that green fluorescent thing in your face. You just pull it and just when you line it up and, and, and look down the barrel of it, you can't see this green. When you when she pulled that gun, and, and, and the funny part about it is none of the officers were really in grave danger when she decided to do what she did. Right? And everybody keeps saying, well, you know, folks need to comply, folks need to comply, folks need to comply. Again, I don't want to turn this into a racial conversation and try to keep it, you know, what keep it for what it is and, and, and accountability for these officers, right? But as you look around and the videos that pop up on social media, right, you see a stark contrast on how African-American citizens are handled versus non-African American citizens or the majority or Caucasian citizens. Caucasian citizens can pull swords, they can fight with these officers, they can do all these things with these officers and not get shot. Now, some will say, well, statistics show that, you know, Caucasian people get shot by police more than black people. Okay, that may be so. But then my question would be, where's your outrage? If, if I'm a Caucasian person and I see that more 
other Caucasians like me are being shot unarmed or whatever paced by police, I should be outraged. I'm I should be, hey, you know, I'll be doing it Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. Police need to stop, pass the Peace Act, pass the qualified immunity. Let's get it done. But nobody's nobody's doing that. And so I asked, you know, I remember when we had, uh, this was years ago, when we had all those police shootings in one week. Fernando Castillo, Castillo, I think it was um, the guy down in New Orleans, got shot in the chest for selling CDs. All these things happened within a week. And I remember my church, shout out to First Baptist Church of Glenard, has a youth group um, that they do every Friday. Uh, now it's called Unashamed, led by uh, Reverend Jonathan Queen and his team over there of, of young adults and uh, youth pastors and youth uh, people that lead, you know, I try to lead our youth. And I remember taking my son, and they had a special thing where they brought all the kids together, and instead of doing their normal thing, group huddles, they had song, dance, all that kind of stuff, they wanted to talk to the kids about what's going on with these shootings, what these shootings mean. And then they had the parents to come into the multi-purpose room, and they put up on the screen where we could see what was going on, see what they was doing, right? And so a police officer, brother, from MPD, Washington Metropolitan Police Department, showed up because he wanted to you know, be a part of the conversation. So when they ushered us to the parents' room, he got to talking, and the parents, he introduced themselves as an MPD officer, and we, as parents, we started asking him questions. And one of the things that stood out to me was he said, and he'd been doing it for like 20, I think he's a 20-year veteran on MPD. He said one of the things he noticed about a lot of officers when they arrive on the scene, he said they arrive on the scene already jacked up, amped up, which takes away the logical thinking of what they're doing. He says, when I show up on the scene, I pull up, I assess what's going on as much as I can. I move at a measured pace to assess what's going on to see what's happening first before I even respond to do anything. I got to get the information in front of me first. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow, but I got to get it in front of me first. I got enough experience to where I can see right through things and just that and the other. He said, a lot of people come jacked up. And this is one of the reasons why I think the Peace Act and qualified immunity needs to be put in place because you can't have people that have the power of life and death in their right trigger finger or their left trigger finger being able to get away with these things like this on a regular basis. Heck, heck, just this past, it was this past weekend or this past week, they had multiple police shootings out in, out in Los Angeles where police officers in Los Angeles shooting people down. I mean, you, you have to have better training. You have to hold people more accountable. Well, if you hold them more accountable, then we're not going to have police officers. I'd beg to differ. I'd beg to differ because you can't tell me that all police officers on any police force in America is out to do wrong and out to be a bad officer. But I think that blue wall, that blue wall of silence is keeping a lot of great officers from telling on bad officers because they don't want to be caught out there in a situation where they're on a distress call and they're asked for backup and because they've held another colleague accountable for doing bad or for beating a suspect up or beating an innocent person up wrongly and they held them accountable and put it in the IED or whatever internal affairs or IA, now they have to worry about whether or not when they call for backup, it's going to show up. Whether or not they're in a situation where there's a, you know, a gun battle is ensuing and whether or not the officer that's with them is going to mistake and make a mistake and shoot them instead of the suspect 
and then come up with some excuse about, well, you know, he was in a line of fire or it was a straight bullet that got loose. It's just stuff like that. It's just, it's, it's, it's a human thing. Not only that, it's training on crisis intervention and all that. Then there's also the mental health thing. You know, I think everybody took defunding the police the wrong way. Everybody took it as if it was, you're going to take the power away from the police. I talked to a couple of police officers who had been a part of the defunding of the police. He said, they told me the first place they're going to take the money from is training. They're not going to take the, and a lot of police officers complaining about they're going to take our weapons away from us. They're going to take our ability to do our jobs away from us, right? And made it seem as though it was that. No, what they were doing was they were cutting, they were taking the money from your training budgets. They weren't taking your guns. They weren't taking, scaling down your ammo and your weapons that you use, telling you you can't go out in the field with a bulletproof vest no more. That's not the funding of the police. And then the funding of the police is taking that money, you know, MPD got what, 1.2 something, so many millions of dollars taken? Take that and hire mental health professionals. So when a call comes in and somebody says, my brother is having a mental health breakdown, the first people on the scene, right, that interacts with that person should probably be a mental health professional. Now, if a police officer shows up, fine. Give them training to control the scene to a degree until the mental health professional shows up. But you can't go just shooting people down because they're having a mental health breakdown. Hell, this COVID is causing a lot of people to go over the edge. They were probably already tinkering there, or if not there, just whatever circumstances happened from COVID and their lives have called them go to edge. And so I'm segueing to, I'm glad I mentioned that because I'm going to segue into mental health. We had a lot of famous athletes over the past 2001, mainly, right, mainly Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, right? These two are the, probably the two of the best at women athletes in the world. But because they spoke out about their mental health and wanted to take care of their mental health, they got vilified for it. Mental health is no joke, man. You know, and I know in the African-American community, you know, Steve, Stevie Francis talked about this, and I talked about this last week on my podcast. Stevie Franchise talked about, you know, telling people that you got mental health issues or expressing your feelings about your mental health is like snitching in the hood. And that's true. It's been like that for a long time, but I think it's time for us to shift that now. A lot of us are walking ahead with PTSD, not from because we went overseas fighting in the war. We got PTSD growing up in our own neighborhoods. We need help. People need help. You know, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles getting paid millions and millions of dollars a year because they're able to perform athletic feats that nobody else can perform on a consistent and a high level. That doesn't make their brain immune to mental health challenges. Naomi Osaka is a perfect example. And, and I don't know Naomi personally. Um, from what I can see, I think Naomi is a, a great person. I think she's a talented tennis player. But I think Naomi's got some shyness and in, 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 introverted things going on with her that she's probably one of the first people, athletes I've seen with this great a talent at that level struggle in that limelight like that. And there may be others I might not be thinking of the time. Hey, but she's pretty much the only one that really stands out to me because she looks uncomfortable talking. She's very soft-spoken, and so on and so forth. And if she's got to protect her mental health, so be it. 
You know what I mean? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. And my thing is this. Watching her play tennis, right? Every time she hits a ball, every time she wins a match, it's not paying my mortgage. Every time she hits a ball, every time she, she wins a match, it's not paying my car note. Every time she wins a match and she and wins, hits a, wins a set or wins a match, it's not changing the community that I live in, right? This is entertainment. It's a sport. So if she wants to take a break, take your break because it's not the same way you winning. It's not doing anything for me and my community per se directly. It's not solving hunger. It's not fixing the political landscape. It's entertainment. And some people may disagree with that. But whether you're playing or not, it doesn't affect the change my world. So for you to take a break, sister, go do you. Take your break. Go on, girl. Get your head right. Get your head right. Get yourself right. You know, do all the things that you need to do to get yourself mentally prepared to go back out there again and do what you do what you can do. The same thing with Simone Biles. And and it's funny because a lot of people are giving Simone Biles a hard time. Right? And I remember one of the gymnastic analysts, I think it was Natasha Luden, the former gymnast, was one of the commentators with the other male guy. I don't know if it was, I forgot who the guy's name was, that was covering the Olympics. And when she went out, Natasha Luden said, she got the flopsies. And she went on to explain what the flopsies is. He says in gymnastics, right? Because everything is so aerial, flips, turns, twists in the air, all that kind of stuff, right? That if you get a case of the flopsies, it's where you're in the middle of your vault, you're in the air spinning, and you lose your equilibrium or where you are in that process. Right. And she said, it's very scary. She said she suffered from it and it took her a minute to get over it. Right. And she said that as great as Simone is. Right. And as risky as the thing she does, if she gets up in the air and has a crisis in the air of the flopsies, she could kill herself. On the landing, come down on her neck, come down on the head come down any old kind of way she could actually kill herself or paralyze herself and I remember people saying well you know that's not listen I'm not a gymnast myself heck I don't even like get up on high ladders let alone any of that stuff because I know how it makes me feel right so imagine running down a runway at 15 to 20 miles an hour hitting a vault hitting that, that that vault box, then going 10, 12, maybe 15 feet in the air, maybe 20 feet in the air, twisting all at the same time, and then trying to have enough balance and coordination to come down and land like it's supposed to. Now imagine all of a sudden you get half you get halfway in the air in that twist and you you lose your sense of balance or where you are, how scary that is. Now some people, one of my boys, had this theory that it might have been that, but they think it was a relationship that threw her off. That she was in love and she was having challenges with relationships and so on and so forth and blah, blah, blah. That may be true. 
That may be true. But I'm not going to discount someone like her who's been doing this a long time, who has created tumbles or flips that they've banned or that they don't score her high enough on because nobody else can do it. There's a, there's a, there's a flip or something routine she did, a somersault or something she did that nobody else can do. And then when she does it, they don't give her a perfect 10 for it. They treat it as if it's another one. Because they're scared to give her, they're scared to give it to her because it's so dominant because nobody else can do it, right? So now she's dealing with that too. So when she speaks and says, "I got the flopsies," okay, I'm gonna listen. It's her. She's telling everybody she's got the flopsies, and I think sometimes we got into a culture where we don't want to believe what comes out of people's mouths a lot of times because we, you know, heard other things and people have been so hypocritical and lied to, so on and so forth. We don't want to believe what comes out of their mouth. But I take her for a word because she had another expert in the sport, a former gymnast champion, back her up saying the same thing. The flopsies is real. And it can, and if you don't get a, get a control of it, it can mess you up. And it kind of messed her up. And she needed that break. There's so much information coming at us. You know, there's a book I'm reading now called Limitless, and it talks about the four villains is digital diluge, which is so much information is coming at us we can't manage it. There is um, digital dementia, right, where we are basically letting our minds go to mush and not using our minds, right. There's digital um, distraction, ping, like button, whatever, whatever is pinging, distracting us all the time. And then, of course, there's this digital deduction, which we're allowing pretty much technology to take over our critical thinking skills, where the first thing we do is, and I've been guilty of it, too, is Google it. We want to know something. As opposed to thinking about it, thinking of trying to figure it out, we just Google it. And then what happens, and the way they broke that down was, what happens is, is we Google it because it's so easy to get to it. And as soon as we Google it, we forget about it because we don't think it's something we need to know. We just need to find an answer for the moment so we won't remember it. But those are all the things that go into all this. So all this stuff plays in together to your mental health. Think about it. Then there's, this, then there's digital, what they call digital depression, right, that we have to look at. And these folks ain't immune to it either. And digital depression is seeing people's highlight reels on social media because people are only going to show you the good parts, Right? They want to show you in Ibiza, right? On vacation in Ibiza. They'll take a couple snapshots in Ibiza. Everybody's looking good. You got, they got the swimsuit on or the swim trunks on. Everybody's looking good like they're having a good time. Everybody sees that, but they don't see that you in debt going to Ibiza, struggling now on the backside, right? Right? And then people see, and the people that do see that become jealous and get depressed because their life is not like that. They're not in a visa, or they're not at a party every uh, every other night, or they don't have the big old house. Show up the big old house like the other people do. Then we get digital depression, is what they call it. So these these folks, Simone Biles, you know, I'll even go a step further. You know, the Kyrie Irvins of the world, the Kevin Loves of the world. You know, more and more athletes are coming out and speaking on their mental health, and we in a community of African Americans. Right, need to really dig into mental health. You know, I shouted out Keir Gaines, I think on my last 
podcast. Um, I like to do shout outs. Um, Kid Gaines is a young brother. I follow him on Instagram. He's been on Oprah. Um, he's doing a lot of work for mental health in the mental health arena. Um, directing people to get mental health. This Erica St. Bernard, who's local here in the DMV, marriage counselor, helping caring, helping couples, you know, get through, you know, those challenges of being married couples. That's focused marriages. The Scots. Big up to Jason and his beautiful bride, the Scots. You know, they they have an Instagram uh, following called Focus. They run a thing called Focus Marriages where they focus on people's marriages. You know, Jason goes out and they, and they actually, he performs wedding ceremonies. They give, you know, families marital counseling, stuff like that. But there's a mental piece in that, you know. Counseling is just, is to me, and my thing is this, is a mental thing. You got to have someone to talk to. You got to have someone to unload your stuff on. A lot of times we keep it internalized. You know, Steve Francis said his breakthrough was finally having to talk to somebody. He even said, you know, one of his breakthroughs was talking to Shumiko Hosqual, former Tennessee great, former WNBA player who had mental health issues that were widely chronicled to a point where, you know, she got in trouble, assault with a gun, just standing other with a girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. He said he talked to her and felt better and felt the courage after talking to her to go seek help. Because he was suffering from what they call, he said, the levees break because you got so many damn. Damn, I spent too much money at the club doing this. Damn, I did this. Damn, I did that. And after a while, all those dams, your levees going to break. And he said the levee broke for him. But he got enough help in time to say, you know, he's not one of those precautionary tales where he's broke now because he got enough help before he did. On the contrast, you flip that, my man Delonte West. Brother is going through, and I pray for brother Delonte. And every, I, I encourage everybody to, you know, listening to the podcast to just send a prayer for Delonte West because he's struggling. Even after going to Mark Cuban, he's kind of, he's still back to struggling again from what I hear and from what I read. Mark Cuban reached out to him and bought him in and got him into these programs. He was doing great. But that struggle caught him back. His struggle is real. We got to take mental health seriously. And it's not just a, a man thing. It's a woman thing too. Everybody needs mental health counseling, man. This ain't no joke. You know, joke. Now, kind of shifting gears toward mental health, one of the things 2020 has brought out, and I think a lot of people did it for their mental health and their financial health, was what they call the Great Resignation. And I read an article about this where in 2020, 2021, a lot of people quit their jobs, man. A lot of people was like, you know what? I'm sick of doing this. This pandemic has showed me that I can work from home. You still want me to come back in. You need all this control. I'm seeing supply chain have issues. I'm seeing you making record profits, but you only paying me peanuts. You know, I remember, again, I think I shared this on one podcast, listening to Joe Madison on, on the Joe Madison show, Big Up to Joe Madison and what he's doing with his hunger strike. Um, bless the brother. I stand behind that brother. Um, listen to his show on Sirius XM 126 in the morning. I think he comes on from 6 to 10. In the morning, Monday through Friday, Joe Madison, check him out on Sirius XM 126. He had a caller call in. It was a mom, two college-age kids, one working at a fast food restaurant. Said the child got a raise from 8.50 an hour to 10.50 an hour, right? Woo, okay, they're doing something. Still too low, in my opinion, but nonetheless, they got a raise. As soon as they got the raise, the, 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 the fast food restaurant turned around and cut, the hours, cut 20 hours back. So they technically didn't get no raise. So now you're making more money, making ten dollars an hour, which is being taxed a little bit higher. More money's being taken out because you make ten dollars fifteen an hour. 
and then they cut 20 hours back. Which means you're really still stuck at really, by the time you get them crunching the numbers out, you're still not an accounting major, but you still pretty much make 850. They cut 20 hours back after they gave you the raise. And so a lot of people are like, you know, a lot of people was going unemployment because unemployment was paying more than what the job was paying when the pandemic hit. And so, been a shout out, and I've talked about this guy on, on previous podcast, Dan Price out in Seattle. Shout out to Dan Price, who's been, I follow him on social media, and every time he puts a post out there, he's telling people how big business is just greedy, you know? How they're just greedy, you know? It's a supply chain, you know? Supply chain is being hurt by a multitude of things. I mean, COVID being a big one. Because um, now you have people that are working on the docks that have either died as a result of catching COVID, trying to get all these these products into these ports or have said, the heck with it, I ain't going back. And it's all about equity in this country, man. That's enough money. I mean, that's enough money for everybody. You know, one of the channels we have on, um, on Fios Television is called All, A-W-E Channel. There's an AWE channel and there's another, I forgot the other channel, but these are two like the Rob Report type channels, right? If you guys are familiar with the Rob Report, the Rob Report is a magazine for the rich. It just covers nothing but wealthy products, services, homes, shoes, cars, whatever your pleasure is for the rich, the Rob Report is it, right? These, these channels are kind of like the Rob Report. And I remember watching one called um, Great Destinations or no, Great Great Homes or something like that. And I'm sitting up here and, my, and me and my wife Paula was watching one time and watching this these estates in California and just the opulence of them, right? 11 bedrooms, 11 bathrooms. I mean, almost all 11 bedrooms is, is a master suite and in my single family home, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's like, what do you really need that for? What intrinsic, I mean, these rooms, some of these homes are like museums. The way the architecture was laid out, the way the tiling was laid out, the way the, where the pillars were laid out. And my wife says to me, I said, what do people need with that? She says, well, because they can. They got the money and they can. It served, these homes really serve no functional, real functional preference, functional purpose other than this opulent look is because people can. And I think that sort of thing, and my thing is this, is what has driven capitalism to become this big thing in this country. You know, Britton James, if you guys are Wall Street, the movie fans, well, Wall Street 1 and Wall Street 2, Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, I think it was what it's called, with Shay, Sh- Shia LaBeouf, and Josh Brolin was in it. Josh Brolin played a character called Britton James. He was kind of like the new or modern version of Gordon Gecko. Of course, they brought back Michael Douglas who came back as Gordon Gecko, who actually had gotten out of prison now, was building himself back up, who his daughter played by, I think it was Carrie Mulligan, um, was estranged from him because of all the stuff he did. And Shia LaBeouf happened to be her boyfriend who ended up being her fiance, right? And... He was on Wall Street working for a guy played by um, uh, Frank Langella. Frank, yeah, Frank Langella, who was an old school broker guy. And like to show billions and his money, Wall Street never sleeps, right? 
everything is determined on Wall Street based on what somebody says or what somebody really does. Or if you want to go after somebody, you short their stock. So that's basically what Britton James did. Basically shorted Franklin Jellis stock in his company, so to speak. I mean, I couldn't I could have that wrong, but he did something to the company where it caused Franklin Jellis company, Shayla Bai's mentor, to take a dump. So Franklin Jellis calmly had breakfast with his wife, like he normally does, tucks his dog off for a walk, and then goes, gets his newspaper, tucks his new paper under his arm, goes down to the subway, and just as the train is pulling to the station, walks right out the platform into the train and kills himself. Of course, that sent Shia Booth into a tailspin. So then he links up with Britton James. And there was a conversation that he had with Britton James where he asked Britton James, what is your number? Britton James says, well, what do you mean what's my number? Shia Booth says, what is your number? Everybody has a number. Talk about rich folks. They got a number that they're trying to hit. You know, is it a billion? Is it 500 million? Is it 2 billion? Is it 10 billion? What's your number? Right? You know what Britton James said? His number was more. <laughs> yeah, you heard him. He said his number was more. His number was more. So he was he was the reincarnation, really, of Gordon Gecko, where greed is good. He wanted more. That was his number. And I think that's how some of our folks in this country are operating is more. And that's why people have lobbied vociferously on the Hill to have these companies avoid paying taxes, have these CEOs and all these wealthy people avoid paying taxes. There's no way you can have a pandemic and people make billions and billions of dollars while everything is shut down. How is that possible? For people to make billions and billions of dollars while everything is shut down. And I think those are the things in our society that we need to fix. And I'm not denying, you know, people say, well, you you know, you hating because people working got this, you know, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Everybody has a drive to do something in life. Everybody goes after that drive. Everybody does what they need to do. I can't begrudge anybody for that. I'm not going to begrudge Jeff Bezos for creating Amazon and create the, 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 the mammoth giant that it is. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself, how much more do you need? And do you really need need all that? And what is what is the end result when it comes? Because... At the end of the day, when the good Lord upstairs says, it's your time to come, your time to be called home, you're not taking $780 billion with you. It's not going in the casket, right? Where's it going? And then you got a, hundred, you worth a, you got a net worth of $130 billion, right? What is it that you in this world can not have that you need to have all that money stacked up like that. And somebody listening to this may say, well, you know, you crazy, man. You ain't never had it. If you had it, you'd probably be the same way. That may be true. I don't know. I'm just speaking for me in the current present right now. I'm not going in the past saying if I had that when I was younger, I'd be the same way. I'm not. I'm just talking about right now with my mindset and how I think and what I see right now, right? You got this big old, you got a museum for a house in D.C. You got Amazon. You, got, you can afford houses all over the world. You can afford any kind of car you want. You can afford all these things, have all these things. I mean, heck, you can give away $100 billion of the 130 billion, the 200 billion that you have and still be loaded. Just completely give it away. You know, I, I mean, if Bill Gates really wanted to do something, because right now, right, 
You know, he, he and his wife got together with a couple of educators, created Common Core. The pandemic has now showed us that the Common Core education system is broken. Mr. Gates, Ms. Melinda, or should I say the former Ms. Ms., Ms., Ms. Mrs. Gates, where's your money? Where's your billions at now to pour into the education system? Heck, you can set up a separate fund yourself that will fund every school district or every state school systems in the entire country with billions and billions of dollars so they can have the more that you don't have to rely on the federal government for that money. That's what I don't understand. Why can't these guys, Elon Musk and, and, and Jeff Bezos and all these other people get together and say, hey, every year we're going to pledge $100 billion to schools. This is specifically what this, what this $100 million will do. $100 billion will do, right? This is what, this is what we wanted to do. This is what it's going to do. So, feds, you keep giving your 40%. The states, you keep taxing people. We're going to add to that pot to make it even better. Simple. You know wrong with that. That ain't hard, right? I mean, in theory, I guess in a utopia, right? But I digress. But that's the great resignation. The great reg- I mean, that's all part of the great resignation. I believe the things I just laid out to you, Everybody that has resigned or quit their jobs are seeing the same things that we're seeing. And they're seeing opportunities to make money on their own. They start their own businesses. They become social media influencers and make money that way, right? Instead of having to worry about being on somebody's clock and watching you make $85,000 a year while the CEO of your company making $85 million a year and you're doing all the work. Yes, they're taking a risk. They're setting a vision. It takes talent. It takes drive. It takes a certain amount of ego. It takes atomic habits. James Clear, the book, right? It takes atomic habits to be the leader of a company, to make a company profitable, right? But I mean, my God, you're making $85 million a year as a CEO, and your lowest person on the totem pole is making forty-five. Heck, you can start everybody at your company with $100,000 a year salary. It still is not going to hurt your company. Because your profits are so crazy. Hell, Exxon, the gasoline companies. I mean, that shouldn't be a person. I don't give a dog if you're a secretary at Exxon. You should be making six figures with the amount of money Exxon is pulling in. Hell, Kaiser, the nonprofit is pulling in billions every quarter, every year. It will be nonprofit. I mean, you know, it, 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 again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm idealistic thinking, pie in the sky, whatever. I don't know. Maybe so. Man, there's so much stuff that has, I mean, to talk about. You know, I'm going to hit a couple things real quick. HBCUs, sports, Jackson State, TSU, Grambling. We got great coaches coming back. Yeah, Eddie George at Tennessee, Tennessee State. Dion doing his thing at Jackson State. And they just hired Hugh Jackson at Grambling. I'm hoping other coaches follow. It's time to shift that. It's time to shift that narrative and shift that, turn that table upside down. You know, Dion is now having, you know, they made a big deal of a Travis Hunter, the number one cornerback in the country, flipping from Florida State and, and coming to Jackson State. And he gave a lucid reason. And so then you got folks out there, you know, my favorite team is Clemson. And Dabo had to complain. I don't necessarily think he was complaining about Jackson State, but I think he's just complaining about the whole system, period. Um, 
with the transfer portal and stuff like that. But here's the thing. Alabama and Georgia ain't worried about that, coach. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Alabama, you don't hear Nick Saban and Kirby Smart complaining about the transfer portal, right? Maybe it's time for you to readjust what, you, what you're doing there that, 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 that turned Clemson into a Power 5 school and then you had a bad year because I think this, my thing is this, as a Clemson fan, been a fan since the home of Jordan days, you went with the wrong quarterback. You let Chase Bryce walk away and went with DJ. You should have kept Chase Bryce and groomed DJ a little bit more behind Chase Bryce. Or the kid, uh, 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 Tayshawn, you got people rolling out like that. You got guys rolling out left and right. Now you, you, you <laughs> your defensive coordinators rolled out. Offensive coordinators are gone, right? Now there's an opportunity to rebuild. Find out those guys. Heck, you always going to recruit skill position players on the offensive side. That's a given at Clemson. You've been getting them. A lot of them are pros, right? I was watching yesterday before the the, the college football playoff came on, Georgia and um, I mean Alabama and um, Cincinnati came on. Well, ACC Network, they replayed the 2016-17 National Championship game with Deshaun Watson and Mike Williams and Hunter Renfro and then we beat Alabama with the last second touchdown. Look at the guys that came out of that team in the NFL on offense and defense, right? You get skill position players all the time. You're wide receiver, you. But I think sometimes in your head, you think big is always good. You know, after T. Higgins left, you know, you still had Frank Lassen, you had Joseph Nagata, you had, you know, Justin Ross who had the, the spinal surgery, right? He's now come back, but it's like you're still, you've gotten away from smaller guys. Where's, who's your hunter run for your team, right? Then on top of that, my if, if, if I'm looking at what the landscape of Clemson is going be, gonna to be for the next five to ten years, if I'm coaching there now, I go and do exactly what Notre Dame and Nick Saban and Michigan and, and, the, and the Big Ten schools and Alabama has done. I started investing in the offensive linemen. I find me one of the best offensive line coaches in the country to come to my program. I pay him a lot of money. And I say, create offensive linemen you here at Clemson. Because you can get Trevor Lawrence all you want. You can get a Travis ATN all you want. You can get a T. Higgins, a Mike Williams. You get all those all you want. If they can't protect the quarterback and you can't run the football and you can't throw the football down the field without an offensive because your quarterback is on his butt or your running backs have been stuffed in the backfield when you go up against the Georgias and Alabamas of the world, what good are they doing to get no skill position if nobody can produce anything? Build an offensive line. Your defensive line, I don't know what it's going to shape out now that, now that Coach V is gone, but you point out defensive linemen every year, man. Your, your, your best class you put out was the was the, was the uh, Power Rangers, Austin Bryant, Christian Wilkins, um, Dexter Lawrence, and, and uh, Cleveland Farrell. That was probably your best offensive lineman you put out. I mean, defensive line you put out. Then you go get Brian Brzee, one of the top defensive linemen here, right here from in the DMV. You rip him out of the DMV. You got uh, Tyler Davis, KJ Henry, Xavier Thomas. It's just a matter of coaching them dudes up, putting them in position. You know, you need to start investing in linebackers and safeties. You always get good cornerbacks. You got you you got to have guys that can make plays. You got to have guys that have talent that can make plays. Watching those two championship games last night, watching the kid, uh, seventeen from from Georgia, um, I think it's Okasan. I mean, watching him do his thing at linebacker, 
I mean, dude, watching heck, watching the kid Beaver from Cincinnati play linebacker. These are not these are these are not system guys. You had you you've had Ben Bowie, you had guys like Ben Bowie, Skowski, and those guys like that playing linebacker. They're the great guys at implementing your scheme, playing within the scheme. But you need like you need guys like Beaver and the kid from from um, uh, Georgia, and this kid from Alabama. They're the playmakers. They can make plays. Yes, you know you understand the scheme. You know this Georgia Alabama don't sit there. And looking at you on the sideline till the last minute, they put their defensive call in, and they're ready to go. We're going to we're going to do we're going to do to you based on what we call, not waiting for you to make your call, and then our call comes in last based on whatever your your team decide to call. And that's one of the big differences between college and pro. Pro, you call defense. You speak into that Mike linebacker's helmet. That's the play. That's it. Now everybody go out there and beat your man and make a play. On offense, you don't see Tom Brady looking to the sideline right before the snap. They go in the huddle, they call their play, boom, it's done. It's done. So don't, you know, don't blame the transfer pool and all these other things going on, coach. And I and I think it's irresponsible for people that try to make it seem as though Dabo was responding to Travis Hunter's flip when he wasn't. He was talking about the transfer portal overall and kids wanted to compete. Those are two separate things. But I think what Dion is doing is great. Now I think what needs to happen to level up now is you need to get more and more people going to Jackson State, Grambling, Tennessee State, and you need to get more and more people backing them, putting them in position, improving the facilities. You know, Dion, because Dion is who he is, Dion got them on national on, on ESPN because he's Dion. Now don't get me wrong, Jackson State is a pretty good program. You know, he's brought that program up. But now it's build and I hope Dion will stay there for 10, 15 years at Jackson State to become one of those coaches. I hope he gets a national championship. I hope that these guys, him, Eddie George, uh, Hugh Jackson, they stay at these programs to build these programs into top 25 programs. Not the top HBCU programs, but top 25 programs that happen to be HBCUs. Then you start bringing that talent back. If you watch the ESPN documentary, ESPN 150, you can see where, you know, (laughs) when they started allowing – African-Americans go to these big schools, it changed the whole landscape of sports because all the pros in the NFL from the old days, from the 60s, 50s, and 60s, even the 70s to a degree, they all came from HBCUs. Hey, oh, Shell was a classmate of my cousin Morgan Dilver. Shout out to my late cousin Morgan Dilver uh, from little old Cambridge, Maryland. They were classmates at UMES when it was Maryland State. These guys from HBCU, and you're still getting quality people, quality athletes come from HBCU. It's just that you need to start building them across the board to where more and more HBCUs, because I would love to see uh, the next big time hire as a head coach at a football program or a basketball program. I'd love to see that at, at, at FAMU. Heck, I'd love to see it here at Howard and Bowie State. Just to name a few. Here in the DMV, Coppin State, Morgan State. I'd love to see some of those things happen. I would love to see Morgan State get back to being a lacrosse powerhouse. There's a documentary that came out about Morgan State lacrosse back in the 60s and the 70s where they were dominating lacrosse. But then, of course, it fell off. It wasn't sustainable. So, you know, so moving right along, I'm going to jump on. There's the Haitians at the border. 
You know, I think I shared this with you. I had a friend of mine, a Coast Guard buddy, who, you know, had to deal with that. I dealt with that, you know, back in early mid '90s, where I saw, you know, Haitian refugees were trying to come to the United States, get asylum. Coast Guard pick them up. All, instead of bringing them here, they would send them back. That didn't sit well with me. <laughs> you know, I'm seeing other, you know, people that don't look like me coming to this country getting asylum and the people that do look like me coming from another country can't get asylum. And I know there's probably some political things going on behind that. And that's fine. Um, Insecure. Isha Ray just finished his final season. His final episode was last weekend. <clears throat> but before there was a Insecure, let's talk about the things that came before them. And let's talk about the catalyst, I think, for black television especially female black television. And I got to give love to Queen Latifah, Kim Fields, Erica Alexander, and Kim Coles, um, and my man John Hinton, and my man um, uh, Carter, last name Carter, my brother Kyle, played Kyle on there. Living, uh, uh, living Single set the, set, set the standard, in my opinion. They set the wave off, right? Four single girls dealing with two dudes, four single women, black women, doing their thing, Maxine Saul, <laughs> Maxine Saul, Attorney at Law, right? Doing their thing. Regine, right? Okay. They were doing their thing. And then came Friends, of course, which was a spinoff. I think Living Single was 93. Friends came in 94. And then fast forward, Girlfriends came along with Tracy Ellis Ross, who's, who's the wife on Black is for Anthony Anderson. You had um, Portia White. You had uh, uh, Miss Brooks. Um, and you had the other lady, uh, Jill Marie Jones, right? Girlfriends, right? And then we had this break, right? We had this huge gap. And now we're seeing more and more shows, you know, because we're getting opportunities in television now. You got Sisters on BET. You got Run the World on, I think it's Stars or Showtime, Run the World, Right? with the four black sisters, successful black sisters doing anything, black sisters up in Harlem. Then you just had on, I think it was, um, was it Netflix or Amazon Prime, um, the show Harlem um, with um, uh, Megan Good in it. Um, of course, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody heard about Megan Good and her husband Devon Franklin breaking up, you know, calling it quits after nine years. But these shows are empowering sisters, man, you know. But, I mean, you got to give it love and shout out to Living Single who, who got this all started. And then you flip back to Insecure. Insecure was really about Isha, right? It, heard, it was based off of her YouTube channel that she was making, right? And you can see her talking to herself in the mirror and being insecure and watching her, you know, for the past five, six seasons stumble her way through this. But looking at her friendship with Molly and and and, and the two other chicks, um, Kelly and, and, and um, the other one played by Amanda Seals, was special and when watching the romantic, you know, the relationships that go on, her and Lawrence, you know, her and the other cats, you know, watching Molly eventually settle down with Tur with, 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 with Turian. Turian was that brother, you know, everybody's like, oh, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a jerk, but end up being just the right guy for her in the end. And just watching that show evolve into what it was, you know, I can say I was a fan of it. I liked it. I mean, it just lets you know she was seeing a lot of stuff that be in people's heads when she's in the mirror. Right, and some people say, "Oh, Isha's messy. It was messy, you know this and the other." But a lot of people are living that way. A lot of people have those thoughts in their minds. So big out, big shout out to 
Insecure, bigger shout out to um, Living Single because that's where it all started, you know. Um, another big shout out to, before I segue into who we lost this year, because uh, I want to give homage to ancestors who have become, people that have become ancestors this year. Um, but let me hit one last thing. Um, Dapper Dan. Many of you might not know who Dapper Dan is. Um, some of you from DMV, some of you from Dan Cell. Dapper Dan is a cultural icon in New York City, especially in the rap community. Dapper Dan was the guy when it came to fashion and outfitting rappers with their outfits. And so Dapper Dan actually became the first African-American to win the CFDA Award, which is the Council of Fashion Designers of America, giving away the fashion designers. Now, some people may say, well, you know, what about Tracy Reese? And what about Everett Hall? Um, what about Willie Smith? You know, what about, you know, all those other black designers that, you know, were out there, may, some maybe before Dapper Dan, some even after Dapper Dan, and so on and so forth, right? And rightfully so, you can ask that question. Um, but Dapper Dan has been this cultural icon, especially in the rap community. He's still doing his thing up in Harlem right now to this day. I think Dapper Dan is probably, I think, probably in his 70s. Dapper Dan might even be 80, but he's still doing his thing. And he set a trend. He took pieces from other designers or other clothing lines and made it his own, you know. Um, and so you got to give love and shout out to him. But I think he shouldn't be the first. He He's the first, but he should never been the first. I mean, there's always going to be a first. But if he – it should have been – he should have been – the fourth, third, fourth, or fifth, and there should have been guys like Willie Smith. I mean, I would even give love to my man Everett Hall, who's based out of here in D.C. Um, you know, you got Tracy Reese's of the world. You know, you got so many people out there, um, African-Americans, that have been great designers, um, even working working behind the scenes. You got the late, great Virgil Abloh. You know, he worked for, I think it was Versace. Um, he just passed away recently from, I think it was cancer. So folks like that, man, should be giving their due and giving their props, you know? And so speaking of the passage, so, you know, we had, and this is going to be my final thing, and I'm just going to run off a list of names that have passed um, in 2021. Um, Cicely Tyson, the great Cicely Tyson. Um, autobiography of Jane Pittman, classic role for her. Uh, Mary Wilson, uh, Colin Powell, marvelous Marvin Hagler, who I think is one of the greatest boxers that ever lived that never really got their full due. Um, I think his loss to Sugar Ray kind of really, you know, soured him to the boxing community. Um, yeah, Yafet Kodo, the brother. Y'all know the Yafet Kodo. Dark Skin Brother, who's played many roles. DMX, um, the great Desmond Tutu. I want to show some love to Betty White. A lot of people don't know this. It's coming out now, but Betty White was probably one of the first Caucasian people to have a show that actually featured an African-American on the show. There was a tap dance, I think the brother's name was Arnold something, that she had on the show. And she caught flack for it. And she ended up making a regular, making him a regular on her show. And because they made she made him a regular on the show, they ended up she only lasted one season. But she was like, "He belongs here. I'm gonna put on my show who I want." And so, shout out to the late great Betty White, uh, Michael K. Williams, my man from The Wire, 
And more recently, he was um, uh, in, uh, what's the movie? Um, the Young Brothers, uh, Superfly. Uh, he was in that movie. But Michael K. Williams, um, great young actor, you know, overdosed, uh, unfortunately. Again, Virgil Abloh, the designer, rapper Young Dolph, gunned down in Memphis for no reason. That gun violence is something, man. We got to stop that killing of each other and put them guns away and put that energy into uplifting instead of taking lives away. Uh, the Diabolical, Bismarcky, famous DJ, guy who operated his own skin, who did his own thing his own way. Nobody beats the biz. Actress Suzanne Douglas played many roles. One of those sisters out there. Clarence William III. Clarence William III. You know, many people remember him from his iconic role in Sugar Hill where he played the daddy with uh, Wesley Snipes. Um, Black Rob the Rapper. My man, Woo. 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 Hank Aaron, the great, the late great Hank Aaron. Set so many records, broke so many barriers, did so much. Never really, in my opinion, got his due in society like he should have. Talk show host Larry King, uh, veteran actor Ed Asner, right? Uh, going back to the rap world, you had Shock G from Digital Underground, my man with the big nose, the Humpty Dance, Ecstasy, late great Ecstasy from Houdini, right? Passed away, right? You had uh, Melvin Van Peoples. Father Mario Van Peoples, he was, they say he was the godfather of the black exploitation films back in the early 70s. Great director, great, great dude. Um, the late, great John Madden, as those who love video and football games, he was the Madden franchise. He was the one that kicked Madden football off. He died uh, earlier this week, as a matter of fact. Lee Elder, one of the first black golfers to win on the PGA Tour. He laid the groundwork for you know, him and Charlie, guys like Charlie Sifford laid the groundwork for Tiger Woods and others to come behind him. Sam Jones, late great Boston Celtic, player and coach at one point. The late great Algin Baylor. Um, John Chaney, great coach from Temple University who stood on his laws. Him and John Thompson were the kings of black head coaches back in their heyday. Um, John Cheney was the one was the first one of the people that had people up at 530 in the morning working out. Um, J.R. Richards, the great pitcher from the Houston Astros from back in the day. I mean, this dude was one of the greatest pitchers in baseball that never really got his due. Mudcat, Mudcat Grant, another great black pitcher. Um, we had Demarius Thomas, former wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, passed away suddenly. Vincent Jackson, another former wide receiver who um, – Unfortunately, died of what they call, I think it was alcohol poison or abuse. Uh, he has some CTE going on as well. The great Bell Hooks, who wrote so many books and woke up so many of our consciousness. Um, the great comedian Paul Mooney. He was Chappelle before there was Chappelle. Give a shout out to Paul Mooney. Rest in peace as an ancestor. Um, me being a member of the United States Coast, being a veteran of the Coast Guard, Merle Smith was the first African-American graduate of the United States Coast Guard Academy. And then I'm going to shout out one last person before I get off of here and let you go on with your day. Um, this person, I didn't know her directly, but I had a tie to her from my aunt 
my aunt is the late great Elaine Stafford. Um, Elaine Adams Stafford. And she was a big civil rights pioneer down in Cambridge. She did so much. She was the one that was able to allow us to get the housing authority, housing projects in where we lived. She was really big in the civil rights movement. She did, And she stood shoulder to shoulder with this giant during the civil rights movement down back in the 60s down in Cambridge. That's Gloria Richardson. So shout out to the our ancestor, late great Gloria Richardson, who was a strong and staunch advocate for civil rights. Um, she recently, she died in 2021. I think she was in her 90s. And so she had a, a huge, really huge impression on the city of Cambridge in which I grew up with. Again, my, my aunt stood shoulder to shoulder with her during that time in the 60s. Um, when the National Guard came through, my aunt was right there with her, my aunt Elaine. And so shout out to... Uh, both of them, my ancestors, Molly Lane passed uh, a couple of years ago, but Miss Gloria Richardson um, passed um, just this past year. And there's so many other people, you know, famous that passed. But more importantly, what I want to give a shout out to is those people that passed that are, you know, close to us. You know, the non-celebrity non people, um, you know, people in our families that have passed, you know, my Aunt Pensy passed away. Um, my next door neighbor's mom, Miss Gloria Shaw, passed away um, this year in 2021. Um, we just had so many people pass um, in, our, in our individual families and in our lives. And so shout out to all those who touch us personally and have passed in our family, in our families, our, and our ancestors. Um, we can grieve but not stay stuck in the grief because I believe my thing is this that we should cherish all the great times that we have with them and those should be the memories that we have um, because no one lives forever it's a it's a reality I know it's not something a lot of people want to hear but no one lives forever and when we lose someone yes it's going to hurt but what should bring us comfort and joy is our faith and our trust in God and also the memories that we had with them that we will trash forever. And so shout out to the hundreds of thousands of people who are their ancestors as a result of COVID. Shout out to those who are ancestors because of, you know, car accidents, drunk driving, whatever, um, gun violence, domestic violence, suicide, Shout out to those folks as well. Keep them in our memories. Keep them strong. Um, one more thing I want to say, uh, and then I'll let you go about your day. And that is big up to my man Frank Langley and his wife Ann. Shout out to them and let them know that God is good because their son Jamal, who's living with disabilities, is finally back home after being in the ICU for quite some time. So shout out to the Langleys. And big ups to my man, Jamal. Uh, may God continue to heal you in, in, in recovery and healing. Um, so shout out to him. Shout out to uh, my ministry leader, Reverend Taylor, and all the challenges that she's going through with losing family member and close friends. You know, lift her up in prayer and comfort. Lift up uh, my sister, Delisha, her, her guy, Gene, and give him healing and recovery during this difficult time as well. Um, 
as he suffers some health issues himself um, recently as well. But just shout out to everybody, man. Whoever's in your prayer circle, whoever's on your prayer list, whoever's in your life, whoever's in your family, friends, loved one, colleagues, just lift them up in prayer and shout out to them for healing and comfort. And if they've lost someone, give them comfort and peace, knowing that um, the time they spent with them was awesome and great. And I'm out. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. And then remember, the next time somebody says something to suspect, well, tell them my thing is this. Because your opinion matters. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Have a blessed week, and we are out. Thank you.